So many people are looking to live happier, more stress-free lives. We provide interviews from mental health experts across various fields because you know finding quality information isn't always easy. Let's find more sanity together. On this episode, Dr. Julie Orris talks about what dialectical behavior therapy is and touches on coping with expected anxieties of living through COVID-19. Dr. Orris is the clinical director of CBT California, where she not only treats patients, but also oversees and trains staff and other trainees. She is trained in a host of empirically supported treatments and has obtained her DBT Lenihan Board of Certification. Beyond this, she supervises students from Pepperdine and Alliant International Universities and postdoctoral fellows from Harbor UCLA Medical Center. She is a volunteer clinical faculty member at UC Irvine and provides training in DBT to community agencies. She is a regular contributor to OC Family Magazine and speaks at professional conferences, including the International Society for the Improvement and Teaching of Dialectical Behavior Therapy. Now on to the interview. All right, Julie, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, glad to be here. Super excited about talking about DBT today. Yeah. And one thing that I've been doing, as you probably know, at the beginning of these uh, interviews is I ask people what their approach to treatment is and what that looks like. So that got that question for you. Uh, what does treatment look like to you? Like, how do you how do you think about it? Well, I've, I've sort of had a, a long journey of trying out different modalities and, and different approaches, finding value in all of them. But where I've landed is that I value evidence-based treatment. I think that consumers have a right to have access to modalities that have been proven to be effective and instead of sort of not knowing whether something will work and doing it anyway. So I, I only at this point in my career rely on evidence-based interventions, which means doing a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy, sometimes trauma-focused um, things like cognitive processing therapy or prolonged exposure. Um, and then under the umbrella of CBT is a treatment called dialectical behavior therapy, which I specialize in. And, and that's a lot of the work that I do. All right. And so um, how would you uh, describe what, what DBT actually is? Uh, like I said, it's under the umbrella of cognitive behavioral therapy. So it, it is in that, that realm um, in the sense that we are looking at how thoughts, feelings, and behaviors uh, kind of interact with each other um, and can contribute to problems with mood and problems with behavior. This particular treatment was originally designed by Marsha Linehan um, back in 1993 for adults with borderline personality disorder. So highly suicidal, self-injuring, often adults with... Um, kind of big spikes of emotion, reactive behavior, impulsive behavior, uh, and, and a lot of relationship problems. Mm -hmm. Now, since that time, the treatment has been much more widely used to treat uh, any anything where we see emotion dysregulation at the root of the problem. So uh, oftentimes when you're seeing any kind of behavioral dysregulation, problems with substance use, eating disorders, self-injury, anger, reactivity, high conflict in relationships, domestic violence, I mean, like a range of problems. But when we see that dysregulated emotion, so big spikes of emotion and reactive behavior related to emotion is causing the problems, we often look to something like dialectical behavior therapy 
which is a, a skills-based approach to learning how to regulate emotion. So the belief is that you, you can't sort of talk someone into or build insight into regulating emotion. You actually have to break down the components. It's sort of if I, like if I said, you know, you just have to do algebra and then your life will get better, but you had never learned how to add, subtract, multiply, or divide. We would certainly have to break that down and start there. And so that's kind of what DBT does is it, it's like, I can coach you on how to use algebra, but meanwhile, I'm going to break all this down for you so that you understand what the components are of doing that. So almost like it's like prerequisite skills that you need in order to do other types to, to gain anything from other types of therapies. Precisely. All right. Precisely. And, you know, a lot of people that, that come into uh, for treatment is often depression and anxiety and, and also anger. Um, you know, how does DBT sort of help with depression or anxiety or anger? Anger, I'll separate out. I'll say if somebody came into my office with straightforward depression or anxiety or, or the two in which, you know, they often co-occur, mm -hmm. uh, I would probably not start out by talking about DBT. I'm, I'm looking at the straightest line, right? So evidence-based, part of evidence-based treatment is that I, this idea that we're going to take the straightest line to the, a path to recovery. So if I can treat you in 12 sessions of CBT and you're going to be, you know, have the tools that you need to manage depression or anxiety or even 20 sessions, let's do that, right? Because DBT is much more intense. It's, it's longer, a little bit longer. Um, there's the skills group plus the individual sessions, coaching between. Um, it's, it's, it's intensive for the, the patient and the therapist. And so if that's, you know, if they're coming with pretty straightforward depression or anxiety, this is probably not where I would start. Now, the research shows that it does have positive impacts on mood. So if somebody comes in with emotion dysregulation. And particularly I'm looking at, do they have behavioral dysregulation? Are they engaging in impulsive behaviors that interfere with their quality of life or keep them from reaching their goals, right? Mm -hmm. If they have that and they have a problem with depression and anxiety, which is pretty common, um, DBT will um, show results in those places as well. Okay. So after hearing more about DBT, cause we're going to get, you know, into the meat and bones of it. Mm -hmm. If people are like, well, should I be going for this? Really? It sounds like what the answer there is. If I have a lot of emotion regulation, like I can't uh, contain my emotions or I tend to act impulsively or can't contain my behavior. Well, when I'm upset, DBT would be a pretty good line of treatment and maybe a first line of treatment before you try other things in your opinion. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, a conversation to have with a well-trained therapist that who's versed in both, right? Like that was the idea is that you, is that you would have a therapist who'd be able to help you sort of suss that out because one of them, again, is more intense, more expensive, probably. And you, you mentioned that word empirically supported treatment, you know, several, several times. And just to get people who might not know what that is, uh, is as a field, um, particularly within CBT, but in other areas, um, there's a lot of science like uh, double blind randomized controlled trials and, and other types of research to show that the treatments are effective in actually treating the problems and reducing the symptoms that that they're trying trying to treat. Um, and, and there's mm -hmm. there's a, a host of those. So basically, you're saying I, I use science backed treatment. Exactly. Data driven intervention. I, I want to know what the research says about what anything I'm doing, you know, is likely to produce in terms of results before I do it. Mm hmm. Okay. Um, all right. So why don't we get into DBT specifically? So like break it down. If someone were to come in for DBT with you or somebody else, what would that even look like? 
Well, first, I think it's helpful to understand why it's different, right? So we talked about the skills component. So the motion regulation being the the biggest target in DBT, there are other targets, but that's sort of like the 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 bit. You know, you don't you don't get a ticket into DBT unless you've got that going for you. Okay. <laughs> so if you've got that, that's uh, that's our big target, and we're going to use those that skills training to try to teach the components of how to regulate emotion through the four modules, which we will also talk about. Um, the other difference in DBT is that. Uh, Dr. Linehan has taken kind of basic CBT, right, or basic behavioral therapy. It's it's a behavioral therapy, which is a little bit different than just CBT, but we, that's a whole other discussion probably. Uh, and as the, these these two components of of dialectics and mindfulness. So the mindfulness is about like the, it's like a Zen practice, right? We bring that in teaching folks how to regulate emotion, how to attend to their experience, how to self-validate their emotions. These are all targets in DBT and we use mindfulness to help people control their attention to be able to do those things. So there's this meditative kind of element of the treatment and then dialectics, learning how to see all, all things that are true at the same time, not trying not to operate in extremes, right? Finding the synthesis between two things that appear to be opposing and, and we think they cannot be true at the same time. We find the synthesis or we, or we kind of hold all things that are true at the same time. So there, those are added elements in the philosophy of DBT. Um, and that's sort of woven in. If you're a patient coming in, you're not, we're not going to have a lecture on, on Zen Buddhism, right? Or, or uh, you know, a one hour transcendental meditation where we're all laying on the floor. It's, it, it doesn't, it just sort of gets woven in um, through the skills and, and through the, the therapist's approach to uh, problems. And, you know, we hear about mindfulness everywhere. Like what yeah. is mindfulness? Well, I guess more so in, in the, in the um, domain of DBT, but like, what is mindfulness? Uh, well, a simple definition of mindfulness is learning how to control your attention, right? So we're, we're teaching exercise, we're giving exercises and giving people practice in uh, learning how to refocus attention, bring it into the present moment. I, I talk about a lot of times trying to have a five senses experience of this moment, right? Instead of a mental experience of this moment. So if if I walk outside and I, it's 98 degrees outside, I might notice that sweat starts to develop on my brow, right? And that uh, I, I feel heat in my body. I might feel the glare of the sun in my face. That's a, that's a five senses experience, right? Versus, oh my God, it's so hot. I can't believe how hot it is. It's, this is, it's so miserable living in California, right? That's my mental experience. And so I, I want to try to have a five senses experience. Number one, it's helpful in motion regulation. And number two, humans are more adaptive to the experience that is actually here, right? Instead of trying to adapt to a mental experience. So it, it makes us more adaptive in general, if we can be where we are and have that five senses experience. All right. So when we're more here and now focused, you're saying we're more regulated just naturally on its own. Yes. Well, um, lots of things. We sleep better. We're kinder. We apologize more. There's lots of, of things that come out of that practice of being more present. Yeah. Yeah. And that sounds like some pretty good things that, that we should all try and right? do yeah, more of so. just like generally. Um, and one thing when I think about mindfulness is the idea is that oftentimes, particularly when we're distressed, when we think about the past, we think about how things went wrong mm -hmm. or how things got messed up. And we think about the future. We think about how things might go wrong or might get messed up. But generally in the here and now, as long as something, not something bad isn't happening, generally the here and now is like pretty, pretty calm. Or calmer than the fears of, of or the, the feeling bad about the past or the fears of the future. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think, I think college or grad school, as you know, is a good example, right? If it's, 
I have a test this week is a lot different than I cannot believe I'm going to be jumping through hoops for the next seven years. Like no one would ever do it <laughs> if you just held all seven years all at the same time. So it's, it's not having to have all those moments at one time. It's, I just have to have this one. And yes, this moment is always tolerable. So then how do you help people become more mindful? Like how would you get that skill acquisition? We do it two ways. I think that mindfulness lends itself better to practice than it does to teaching. Uh, and we and we do both, right? So um, again, it would be a little bit like saying, we're going to practice algebra today and, and someone being like, I don't know what you mean. So we, we, do, we do teach it. We break it down into the, what's called the what and how skills of mindfulness, the what skills observe, describe, participate, the how skills, one mindfully, effectively, non-judgmentally. But then we do practice. We do mindfulness practice for about five minutes at the beginning of every skills oh. training session. Um, sometimes we incorporate mindfulness practice into individual sessions if it's if it's indicated and in what's happening in the session. Um, so there's a constant practice. And then the two weeks out of every eight-week module, so there's three eight-week modules of skills and two weeks of each eight-week module, we go back to mindfulness. So we're introducing it at the beginning of every module and then practicing it throughout each one. All right. And so you're, you're talking about these... Um like the skill-based modules, what, what, what else is outside of the skill-based modules? Like what's after that or in between or how it works? So standard DBT includes four modules of skills, uh, emotion regulation skills, interpersonal effectiveness skills, distress tolerance skills, and mindfulness skills. And mindfulness, because of the importance of sort of coming back to it and having an evolving practice, is introduced for a couple weeks at the beginning of each eight-week module. And the other skills are done, well, this is how we do it at our practice. The, the length of the modules is not standardized as much, um, but we, we do a six weeks of, of the other three. So two weeks of mindfulness, then six weeks of something else. And those, those are the areas that the research has found are going to target the problems related to emotion regulation the best. Okay. And, and before, when you, when you brought up mindfulness, you also brought up uh, dialectics and that's actually like the D in DBT. Yeah. Um, and, and you briefly talked about it, but can you explain to people more like what is, what is a dialectic? Sure. So a dialectic is uh, a continue or is, is two extremes, right? It's a, it's uh, the, the core dialectic. It's two things that appear to be opposing and they're, they're, they're poles on a continuum. That's the dialectic. We're trying to resolve dialectics by finding a middle path or finding the synthesis between the two poles on an extreme. So the theory of dialectics is that when one extreme presents itself, another one will emerge. You may notice this between people. You may notice this within yourself. So I think a good example of that would be like our human struggles with weight management, right? Like I might decide to go uh, on a juice cleanse in response to some negative self-talk I'm having, like, oh, I'm just going to go on a juice cleanse. I don't have to deal with feeling fat anymore. Right. So I go deal, take a 10 day juice cleanse. And at the end of that, I'm feeling pretty good. But I mean, what is it? Two weeks later, I'm like, now I'm, I want pasta every meal. Right. Cause we, we end up w wanting to, to swing. Right. So in a sense, the deprivation pulls for indulgence. Those are the two extremes. And by doing this, I sort of make this more likely. And so what I want to do, and this is some of what we talk about in treatment for weight management is how do I find, how do I find that middle path? When I feel like my pants are tight, how do I avoid going to juice cleanse? How do I just go to, you know, back to the middle path and try to try to stay in that middle path. And in, 
<clears throat> interpersonally, do you have an example of that? Like what I think of is like, I'm worried that somebody is going to reject me or I'm upset with somebody. So I'm just going to toss away the relationship, you know, it's, it's like one extreme going to another, but do you have, is, is that a good example or, or is there something better that you could think of? That's a good example of, a, of operating in extremes, which is what happens when we're not thinking dialectically. I think someone becomes all bad. And that is actually one of the targets for emotion dysregulation or borderline personality is this idealization and devaluation of people, which is a way that we operate in extremes. You're the best. I love you so much. I can't wait to spend all my time with you. And then now I can't stand you. I don't want to be around you. I'm done with this relationship. That can happen. Um, a, a maybe like a more common or relatable example would be like in, in parenting, when I see my spouse punishing uh, or having a, a punishing tone with my toddler, and if it, I have the thought that that's too extreme or it doesn't fit the situation or it's not fair, I am pulled to be more nurturing, more permissive. And so what you can see, and this, this is what happens a lot of times in marriages, is you know, you've got a spender and a saver, or you've got a punisher and, a, and someone and a, you know, someone who's more lenient. And you can end up pushing each other to the extremes by sort of like balancing. This is this whole idea of balancing each other out, mm -hmm. right? Like I balance my juice cleanse with a trip to McDonald's. I balance my husband's spending with some saving behavior. And what we actually are ending up doing is getting more and more extreme. Extreme. And then often you see uh, cleanly versus disorganized. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I definitely. won't say which one I am. <laughs> uh, so I think, so you mentioned, I think, so the mindfulness module, um, is key across all of them. Then it gets reintroduced in the other ones. Another one that you had noted was interpersonal effectiveness. What happens during that module? What we notice is that, that relationships bring about the, probably the most emotion for people, conflict in relationships, you know, yields a lot of emotion, um, loss of relationships, fear of loss of relationships, right? So there's a lot of emotion tied up in relationships and not just romantic relationships or friendships, but also your relationship with your boss, right? And just in general, we see a lot of emotion there. And what can happen as a result of that is people can end up in patterns of passivity or aggression uh, and not um, more tempered assertiveness, more mindful kind of assertive behavior. So largely the interpersonal effectiveness module is learning how to ask for what you want, say no, and solve problems in a way that is not destructive to relationships. Okay. And what are or some of self-respect? Okay. Well, like, so you say like things are destructive or, or harming your own self-respect. Like what, what are some, like, what are some of those behaviors that you see often? Something that would be detrimental to my self-respect is if like, well, a minor example would be like, if I'm afraid to disappoint my, this person I'm dating by, you know, saying where I want to eat, then like I spent th three years eating only the kind of food that that person wants to eat. Right. Mm. And then over time it diminishes my self-respect. It can get much more extreme than that. Right. We can end up in abusive situations or, um, so, you know, oftentimes what I see is, is folks, uh, who have problems with dysregulation feel like they have to sort of make up for that by being more accommodating of others, uh, which diminishes self-respect also builds resentment and can lead to sort of like blow up behaviors, right? Like a, a moment of, of aggression after lots of moments of passivity. And so finding that balance of um, sort of attending to how is it going to affect my self-respect if I don't say something here, if I don't stand up for myself here, if I don't ask for a raise, something like that. Um, and then also, how is this going to impact my relationship if I say something? Because the other side of that, right, is that I have so much emotion that I need to say something every time. And if 
you've ever been in a romantic relationship, saying something every time, not super effective. So. Yeah, or or at work. Anywhere, yes, <laughs> true. Yeah, yeah, that could absolutely. cause a lot, cause a lot of uh, a lot of problems there. Um, and then I, and you know, looping how the mindfulness would be in here, it sounds like just being aware that this is going on and being present yeah. with it. Like you need to know that something is going on and accept that it's going on in order to then take the next step of doing something to change it. Right. Right. So it's like a prerequisite right. to, to be able to change. Um, and then the other module and you, you hit upon, uh, upon it already, but that was like emotion regulation. Is there anything else in the emotion regulation modules that you didn't touch on already? Well, so the emotion regulation skills, yeah, I don't think we talked too much about what the actual skills are. There's a, there's a couple of things we introduced here. Number one, I, I see emotion regulation skills, uh, one of the major goals as kind of reintroducing folks to their emotional system, like so they can like make up because they've been like mad at each other for a long time. Like folks who have had a lot of problems with emotion, if I ask them, hey, c- if, if I can arrange for, you know, your amygdala removal next week, would you be down for that? They'd be like, yes, I'm in, right? Like, take it out. I don't need emotion. Wait, let's tell, tell people so what the problems. amygdala is. So let's tell people what the amygdala is. So if I said to someone, if we could remove the emotional center of your brain, how about that? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a a lot of emotional activity in that part of the brain. It's kind of, uh, we would have a lot less emotion. Well, that's Mm -hmm. the idea, right? Like, take it out. I don't want emotion. I don't need it in my life. Well, did you watch Free Solo? No. So it's a movie. It's it, no, I'm pretty sure it's called Free Solo. It's a documentary of a guy who um, climbs the. I think it's called El Capitan. It's really oh, high yeah, ridge yeah, yeah, yeah. with yeah. no with no string, and they did MRIs yeah. on his emotional response, and it was completely blunted down. And that's how he could do it with such little fear is that he just do- doesn't have a sh- like a, a, he has an extremely extremely dampened fear response. Like I think the researchers were like were remarkably shocked by by the results of the MRI when, when I from what I remember in the movie. Wow. That's fascinating. That totally yeah. makes sense. Yeah, because there's no I I went rock climbing once with ropes with a seasoned expert and I was terrified the entire yeah, time. And totally. then when I got up, he was like lean back and jump down. And I was it, oh, it took it took me about five minutes to actually comply <laughs> yeah. with his request. Uh but okay, all right. So so the, the those fear response centers is the amygdala or another negative emotion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so reintroducing them to the emotional system in a way that allows them to have appreciation for how this has helped them, right? Like, I don't, I don't know El Capitan guy, but I'm guessing that relationships are not as intuitive for him if he's got, like, you know, such low oh, emotional You get to see it in, in the documentary if you watch it. Okay. So yeah. like he, maybe, you know, he's not going to go into being a psychologist. Mm-hmm. So like, there are things that, that we we are more attuned. I, you know, I'm an emotional person, which is probably why I, I love DBT so much. Cause I feel like in, in some ways, like these are my people. I get like, let's talk about how to have a, you know, a life that's meaningful and worthwhile and how to just like learn how to channel some of this stuff in a way that's more effective for you. Cause when you have more emotion, you're more attuned to other people. Um, you can have a lot of depth in your life. You know, I can experience joy, you know, at the, the depths that I can experience pain. There's, there's lots of things that can come out of that and ways that we can use our emotions to, to serve us. They have important functions, but so I, I like to call it like introducing you to your emotional system in a way that you guys can be friends. Okay. Uh, and then also like we learn how to reduce vulnerability to strong emotions. So things you can do every day that make it less likely you'll have a big spike of emotion or a, a bigger spike of emotion, how to have emotions without having them turn into behavior, sort of just habituating to strong emotion in the body, knowing that it doesn't have to be acted on, things like that. Okay. And um, it's just to get an idea, like what are some like specific techniques that you would teach people in order in order to get get to that goal? 
I'll tell you my favorite emotion, my favorite emotion regulation skill is called opposite to emotion action. Uh, it's based on this idea that the way that the emotional system is wired, you can change emotion by changing your, your behavior, your facial expression and your body and your behavior. Uh, you, you know, the prompting event, whatever happens, leads to thoughts which trigger the emotion. And that's the interpretation of the event triggers the emotion. So, yes, you can pay attention to a different, you can have a different event that will then diffuse some of that emotion. But on the other end of the emotion, you have your reaction to it, which actually also increases the chemical that what we call emotions in the body. So, if I act angry, if I yell and scream and vent, as we call it, that's actually going to increase anger. So, if I get pissed off at my spouse because he left his shoes out. <laughs> he doesn't leave his shoes out. I leave my shoes out, but let's just say, oh, so you're the you know, messy I one. can call my friend and be like, this guy always leaving his shoes out. Right. And then my anger is actually higher. It's a myth that venting is helpful. It's the mm -hmm. validation from others. That's actually helpful. Anyway. So my favorite skill is about, you know, recognizing that and going, okay, anger's not good for me. So instead of calling my friend and venting, I've got to do something that changes my my facial expression and the way that I'm holding my body posture and the words that are coming out of my mouth and my thoughts all to be opposite to what anger would tell me to do. And that will diffuse the emotion in my body. And then I don't have to, you know, have some passive aggressive comment fly out of my mouth an hour later, which is kind of the risk of not diffusing anger in the body. Yeah. And there's a lot of uh, research around body states impacting people's emotion, emotions. Mm -hmm. um, anybody remember, um, the, the study with, with the pen where they held the yeah, pen yeah. in their mouth. Yes. So if you, uh, if, if you hold it kind of with your, in your teeth across, across, then you smile or they had them hold it just in. So their mouth made more of an <laughs> O or a frown. And when yeah. they smile and they, and the people didn't know that they were smiling or frowning when they smiled, they rated, uh, I think it was images as more positive mm -hmm. and vice versa for the other one. Mm -hmm. Um, there's the one where, uh, they had, Participants run, walk across like a scary bridge with uh, with um, one of the researchers. And at mm -hmm. the end, they rated their attractiveness to that person. And the ones in the scary <sighs> stimulus rated the person as more more attractive uh, because <clears throat> they had, you know, that that increased affect. So over and over and over again. And I remember there's like an adrenaline and anger one. So, yeah, there's this huge mm -hmm. uh, body mind connection. And but the mm -hmm. other way too, mind, mind body. So just like you were saying, right. it goes both ways your mind um, can make your body react and your emotions intense and then the other way up. Yeah. 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 It's fascinating. So that's it. It's a cool skill to be able to change your emotion when, when maybe it fits the situation, but it's not going to be helpful or it doesn't fit the situation. So you want to kind of change the emotion, which is not the same as telling yourself, I shouldn't feel this way. Mm -hmm. What's wrong with me. I'm making a big deal out of nothing. Right. That's just self-invalidation and actually increases emotions. We have that precision in DBT, which is like, how do I actually change emotion? Mm. And, and, you know, and, and that's an interesting principle, like val validating, um, emotions because you have some people saying, well, I really shouldn't be feeling this way because I was wrong. So wh where's the line between val feeling and validating your emotions and that, and that other part of it that I often hear. I'm so glad you asked about that. I feel like if, if people will learn nothing from TBT, if they can learn how to self-validate their quality of life is going to be enhanced. I mean, that's, that is at the root of what's called the biosocial model is that, that folks who have emotion dysregulation, the theory is that they have, they're biologically more sensitive and then in a transaction with their caretaking, caretaking environment or the, the larger environment, but oftentimes their caretaking environment, they get the message that their experience doesn't make sense and that they shouldn't feel so strongly or they shouldn't feel this way or, you know, and not that that is necessarily 
bad parenting. I mean, I, I invalidate my kids all the time. It's sort of the, the transaction between the biology and more frequent invalidation and the lack of attunement there that can sort of lead to the dysregulation. Because now I have these emotions and I'm, I'm being told they don't fit. So I want to get rid of them. That's where the behaviors come in to try to regulate the emotion so that I can function and not have so much of it. And so the message in GBT is let's make sense of that emotion. Let's figure out why it's there. And what we know is that just by doing that, it actually is more regulated. You know, so, you, you think about like if you go home from work and your spouse says, how was your day? And you're like, oh, I had, you know, the long 14 hour day. And it seemed like everyone was mad at me. If my spouse says, you got to stop overscheduling yourself. My emotion goes up. But if he says, man, that sounds really tough. My emotion goes down. Right. So, so just acknowledging that the emotion is there actually does have a regulation effect. Okay. And I love uh, kid examples. So <clears throat> when we're talking about like kids, like where is the line between, between validating their emotions versus sort of redirecting and saying, well, that's not the way that we should be doing things. Oh, I like that. So, so one major distinction here is between someone's emotion and their behavior. So if I tell my son, we're not going to go to the pool today, we're changing plans. And he screams and cries and throws a big fit on the floor. The message is, man, I can, I know you wanted to go to the pool. I can see how disappointed you are. And it's not okay to hit mommy, right? Like both are mm -hmm. true. And we're going to, that's the dialectic. Yeah. Uh, and so we're going to validate the kid's emotional experience not validate invalid behavior or ineffective behavior. So I can imagine that these DBT skills um, relate a lot to just parenting skills. Without DBT skills, I think I would be in a, a heap of trouble as a parent. <laughs> so mm. I don't feel like parenting comes naturally to me at all. I'm not a natural nurturer. I don't love finger painting, right? I think there's just so many challenges and I am relying heavily on my DBT skills all the time. Yeah. And um, have they made like DBT for parenting, like, like workshops or, or like, a like, have they actually manualized this or, or created something around that? Uh, it's funny you should say that. I've often thought about doing the manual myself. Uh, it's a, a passion of mine. It's something I'm super invested in. I, we do do a lot of parenting. The context that, that you usually see parenting in DBT is in the adolescent DBT module. There's a parent skills component that uh, Alec Miller kind of developed an adolescent model of DBT that involves a, what's called a multifamily skills group. So the parents go to the skills training with the kids. Um, and then they get parent coaching on the side, sort of how to use their skills in parenting. Um, some some teams do it differently where they t teach the parents separately, but it's the same skills. Uh, and so I, I've, I do a lot of outreach to parents in the community, a lot of PTA talks and stuff, trying to introduce some of the, the I think, more relevant uh, DBT skills that help folks with parenting, like regulating their own emotion, self-validating themselves as, as parents. Um, the targeting specifically reactivity in parents by teaching them some tools, validation, how to validate your children effectively so that you can have less conflict and have improve the relationship. Yeah. So it really sounds like there's a lot of intersect between parenting oh, and, yeah. and just the DBT skills. Sure. Um, so with the stress tolerance, what actually is the stress tolerance? And then, you know, yeah. what is this module? Distress tolerance is a set of skills. So the target in distress tolerance, like the target in interpersonal effectiveness is, is, 
problems in relationships. The target in emotion regulation is dysregulation. The target in teaching distress tolerance skills is impulsivity. So we're looking, when we're talking about distress tolerance skills, we're looking at that, that place, the emotional system where you're beyond really being able to think clearly because your emotions are so high. So you're maybe in that back part of the brain where, where it's more just instinctive, instinctive is the adaptive version of, of impulsive, right? We don't call it impulsivity if it turns out. Okay. <laughs> it's the same thing. Okay. It's the, Makes sense. the reactive thing that we do in response to high emotion. So if I'm on the freeway and a car pulls out in front of me and I just pull out of the way, that's instinctive. Right. But if I punch somebody in the face when they make me mad, that's impulsive. Hmm. So I, we're trying to decrease impulsivity. So ineffective behaviors that come out of strong emotions by looking for that range. And and one of the most important skills is called the stop skill. And I'll, I just, I think of the stop skill as mindfulness of dysregulation. So learning how to track that, that you're at that point and just, just go, Oh, I'm at, there I am. I'm at that point where I might say or do something that would be ineffective. And once you realize that, then there's, there's kind of two sets of skills. One are, are called crisis survival strategies things uh, from sticking your face in ice water to self-soothing by listening to music. Um, and then we have the reality acceptance strategies, which are based on the idea that sometimes the thing has already happened and it's just sort of reminding the brain like, oh, this has already happened. There's nothing to solve here. There's nothing to get kind of activated to fight here. Like this thing has happened. Hmm. So in, in CBT, like oftentimes when we think about um, exposure, even when we do uh, different types of mindfulness, uh, we often think about like anxiety or, or distress tolerance in the sense that you kind of build a callus, like the more that you feel strong emotion, um, you start building a callus mm -hmm. on it so um, so that you could behave and regulate better because you, you do have that callus. So maybe the emotion is still really high and it was as high as before. Hopefully we could lower it down, but let's say it is you, you're still in more in control. Uh, does that translate or does that parallel to the distress tolerance that you're talking about? That's a really good question. I would say that the emotion regulation skills are where you get uh, another way to look at that would be habituation to strong emotion. The reason I say that is because the distress tolerance skills are largely about moving away. They're about moving away from the event, moving away from that emotion by distracting yourself or shocking your system in some way, right? So you may not, it's a little bit like uh, a more adaptive version of a Xanax, right? So you're not learning how to habituate to anxiety necessarily. You're taking something or doing something that kind of like you know, makes it go away or distracts you from it, right? And if you go back to the thing, you might still have the emotion go up and up and up and up. And so like, I, I see emotion regulation skills as where we do more of the exposure, what we call exposure to strong emotion, habituation to strong emotion. So there's a skill called mindfulness of emotion, which is where you just sort of bring your attention to the sensation in your body and notice, notice the intensity, notice the rise and fall of it. Again, like make friends with that emotion, knowing like, oh, this doesn't actually kill me if I just have a really strong emotion in my body. It's quite tolerable. Uh, and, and, you know, one thing that we know is that like avoiding distress or avoiding anxiety over time increases the negative emotion. Uh, yes. So is the idea with the distress tolerance that you do something to help you cool down maybe from a 10 down to a seven, but then come back to it. So, so it's not avoidance. Bingo. Okay. Still got to solve the problem. I'm still got to have the emotion probably. Yes, absolutely. It is. Okay. It is known as our our skill that just like kind of brings us back to a place where we can use other skills. Yeah. And you see how I have to try and understand it in a CBT mindset because I have such like, you know, that yeah. that's my formulated yeah. approach to, 
to the, the world and human nature and all that. Um, so now if somebody's saying, wow, like, oh, well, before we go there, is there anything else in those modules that you wanted to hit on? Or do you feel like we, we covered most of what happens in, in DBT? I guess we didn't really talk about the target of mindfulness. I, the target, as I go went through the targets of the other skills, the target of mindfulness is uh, something that a lot of people with dysregulation or a borderline personality call em- the feeling of emptiness, uh, something called identity confusion. I, I think of it as just being not as connected to your experience, not having that, oh, this is me, like, this is what I like, or this is what I want to do, or you know, feeling sort of not as connected. To, it doesn't feel as organic to, to move towards something. And sometimes we're looking outside of us to see like, what am I supposed to like? Or what am I supposed to wear? Or what am I supposed to be doing with my life? And in that way, it can lead to that kind of dysphoric or kind of emptiness feeling. And so mindfulness is about getting connected to your present moment experience so that you have more of a sense of like, this is me. This is what I like. This is what I don't like. That kind of thing. Yeah. And um, we, we often hear this term of DBT, wise mind. Where does wise mind fall in all this, and and what is it? Uh, it's it's sort of a related skill to to mindfulness. Uh, the idea is that that mindfulness is the path to wise mind. I th- I think of mindfulness, I mean wise mind, as just that place where you kind of know what's good for you, where you can just drop down. Uh, there's a metaphor of a spiral staircase in DBT, where you do like sort of a meditation of picturing yourself walking the spiral staircase till you get to that place where you just kind of know. Uh, what's good for you. Uh, we talk about the states of mind, wise mind being the ultimate state, the ideal state of mind, uh, but the other two states being emotion, mind and reasonable mind. So emotion, mind is I'm completely driven by emotion. I might be reactive to emotion. Uh, I, I love him. So he's perfect for me, right? Even if he's the heroin addict or, you know, like uh, there, there might just be like this, like my emotions telling me to do this thing. Uh, and then reasonable mind being more like it looks good on paper. It's probably what I should do. Right. Like my my dad was a doctor, so I should be a doctor. Right. Like just kind of like not as attentive to like your own experience. So wise mind is that place where you bring them together and you just kind of know, have a sense of knowing. So you take information from both of them and, and you you sort of you combine them. Is that the idea of wise mind or is wise mind just like the yes. middle ground between or both? I, I maybe they're exactly the same thing I said twice. <laughs> it is holding both. I think you're incorporating both and you're looking at what's, what am I not attending to? But I, I like to think of it as a little bit more than that. Just like a more of a spiritual place that you arrive. I don't know, but, but yes, ultimately it's, it's, it is holding both. Mm-hmm. I, that's interesting that you said, you said spiritual. Do you find DBT to have a bit more of that, like spiritual, not that it's re- re- a religion, but it has more of a spiritual aspect to it? It does because of the influence of, of the Buddhism Zen practice. Uh, I mean, we don't, we're not Buddhists per se. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about Buddhism or, or we don't talk about God in that way. Uh, or any, we don't really talk about God. There's a one place where we say like evidence shows that people who pray are more adaptive to emotions. And so if you, if you're someone who prays, like, please, like by all means go for it. Uh, but that's, it's no, it's, it's another religious component, but yes, I, I think there is a spiritual element to, um, I mean, if I think about the practice of mindfulness and, and having that five senses experiment experience and in my own mindfulness practice over time, I think what it lends itself to is, is accept thing, these are themes throughout DBT acceptance of what is, uh, more being more alike than different than other people, compassion as a result, compassion for self, compassion for others, um, 
a groundedness in, in what is an understanding of what is right. There's not that when I say acceptance, I mean, we don't get as stuck and this shouldn't be this way, or why is this this way? Or why is this happening? There's more of a sense of, of acceptance and therefore peace about it. I think we are more connected to other people and to the earth. Um, and in that way, I, it feels like a spiritual practice yeah, without reason, talking about God or religion. Yeah. And the reason why I ask that is because a lot of DBT people I know, I mean, I've heard this phrase, like, like I like this therapy because it feels like it has a soul to it. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I hear that a lot. Um, all right. So let's go down. Cause you had mentioned that there's individual, that there's group, like what, so if somebody were to go for true DBT, what would like structurally it actually look like besides just the traditional, when you think of like one-on-one therapy? So there is that. There's the, so there's there's four components. The standard DBT has four components. There's the individual therapy where you're meeting one on one with a therapist once a week. There's the group skills training where you're learning those skills. You know, there's a, a teacher. It's much like a class. There's homework, that kind of thing. So the individual, the group, and then there's what's called phone coaching in between sessions. So the therapist is available. The standard model is 24 um, seven. A lot of us don't do quite. 24 seven. Um, but a, a lot of hours are available to someone if they need in the moment, they want to use their skills. They're stuck. They have urges for what we call target behavior, right? The behavioral dysregulation we talked about. So, you know, purging or self-harm or drug use, they have urges for target behavior, but they want to use their skills. And so they can call the therapist or text the therapist in the moment. Um, hopefully the, they can have that, that phone call for 10 or 15 minutes to, to be like a sidelines coach. Hey, try this. I think this will work, get, you know, get a commitment from the client to do that. And then they can kind of be on their way. Um, and, and then we don't have as much like coming to session. Oh, I did the thing again. And then trying to problem solve it on the back end. Uh, and then the fourth component is consultation team. So every therapist who does standard DBT participates on a consultation team with other DBT providers. Okay. Um, and then w- when we were doing our pre-interview, you had mentioned how, um, they're actually integrating DBT, like into systems, like schools uh, and things like that. Like, where have you seen it being more societally implemented at, at a bigger level? So, uh, Dr. Jim Maza and Elizabeth Dexter Maza initially developed the text for DBT in schools. So they they were doing a lot of work on a, a model that was introducing DBT skills into like a health class or, you know, finding different ways to integrate it into schools. Um, after years, I think, of, for of all of us realizing this is so applicable to all people, you know, why not teach this to teenagers so that everyone's equipped with, uh, you know, like we, we, there's lots of research to show that a social emotional learning curriculum enhances outcomes academically. I mean, other outcomes that we care about as well, like, right, like they're more adaptive to life in general, but what the school district cares about is academic outcomes. And by introducing the social emotional learning curriculum, it's no surprise academic scores are better as well. So DBT is an is a alternative to previously developed social emotional learning curriculum. And of course I'm biased toward it. I think it's like the best thing you can possibly teach kids and parents. So there is an initiative like what I'm aware of is Alec Miller. They have they're implementing all over uh, White Plains and Manhattan and, you know, all over there uh, where you are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So um, and that's been successful. There's not a ton of data yet out on on that and not on that compared to a social emotional curriculum, from my understanding. Um, where we're at with it here is I've been approached several times at CBT California to 
for us to do it in schools. And it just, we just can't seem to get it rolling. We were just about to do a training with a district finally in, in uh, Anaheim School District and COVID-19. So we, the, the training date just passed actually. So I'm hopeful that out here we can get this moving too, because I think it would be like really make a difference, like huge difference for, for kids and just in the world. If all kids were being, you know, taught these skills. And, you know, is there any research that um, shows like the longitudinal effect of that? Like, okay, we teach kids and adolescents these skills. Are they have a better quality of life and better adjustment as an adult? Or do you know if there's anything that looked at that yet? The only data I could point to is the the adolescent studies and the the sort of like repeated measures over time for adolescents. And there's some studies to show that the skills stick, right? That they continue to experience mm-hmm. a better quality of life than they came in with. But like, that's not going to that I don't know uh, any, I don't think we've been doing D, In fact, I know we've not been doing DBT in the schools enough to say what it's, what the impact is on the general population. Hmm. Um, and you just brought up COVID-19. Uh, and one thing that was interesting that we had talked about in the pre-interview was um, the work that you've been doing with people versus anxiety versus justified fear uh, during, during this time. Um, so like, what did you mean about anxiety versus justified fear at a time when we should be a bit more alert and anxious and vigilant? Yeah. Well, so I've had a lot of people, my existing caseload, and then additional people come in saying, because of COVID-19, I now have an anxiety problem. I need treatment. I have, I think I have, I need medication. I think I have an anxiety disorder. Um, and what, what strikes me initially about that is first of all, like I'm going through it too. And I'm like, girl, if you do, I do. <laughs> like, and so I, I think like, I want to introduce this element of, of first of all, self-compassion that we're all going through something that is putting us into this hypervigilant, hypervigilant state and really interfering with our quality of life, but also just like educating people on the difference between like, when we say anxiety, that's a, that's a pathology. That's a pathology. That's a label that, that suggests, I mean, if you're using it correctly, it's a label that suggests that this is outside of the norm mm-hmm. and that you need treatment for it to get you back into the norm. I'm not a huge fan of that whole medical model anyway, sometimes, but you know, that's the idea. So when we're talking about a normative response to something, we can't call it, we can't give it a, a, a name that implies pathology. So I, I think anxiety is about I mean, what, what I think about anxiety, I think about an unjustified fear, right? I'm a, I have, I have anxiety about public speaking. I have anxiety about going on dates, right? These are not dangerous events, uh, hopefully, mm-hmm. right? There's no present threat. There's nothing where that that's actually, you know, in the environment that would suggest a threat. And yet my body is telling me there's a threat that I need to like run away or get away from this, this thing. That's anxiety. COVID-19 is the, uh, the, there is a present threat. There's a, an un, un, we don't know a lot about this virus. It's killing people, you know, without knowing more about it, we don't know how fast it'll kill people or how susceptible we are. And what we do know is that the way to avoid risking death or risking serious illness is to wash your hands, stay inside, not, you know, be around people, stay six feet, to stay in a state where you can monitor all that, where you can remember to put your mask on, where you can wash your hands enough, where you can not casually shake someone's hand. Someone tried to shake my hand at, across the street last night. And I was like, oh, you know, I have to be in that hypervigilant state to remember to go, oh, I'm not shaking hands, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, that's a justified fear in the sense that 
that hypervigilant state is adaptive. So when our fear is adaptive at helping us avoid a threat or fight off a threat, I, I you know, I want us to use different language, self-compassionate language, and also just sort of self-validating that like this, this response makes sense and it helps me stay hypervigilant. And also like, then how do I take care of myself? Because that's a lot of cortisol to be <laughs> dripping through the body for four months at a time. Uh, and then social distancing. And I'm more so thinking about like when you are at a gathering, um, mentally you have to keep track because every single culture has a distance that we like to stand away from somebody. That's a good like point. We have a yeah. preset. And uh, one thing I remember learning in multicultural psychology is that if you have two people talking and one person prefers a closer talking distance than the other, they start dancing out around the room because one person stands too close. The other person stands further back then the other person stands too close. So they end up kind of like, like going around in a circle. And yeah. so people might've caught themselves that they are going to socially distance relatives or friends that by the time of it, that distance keeps going down. And that's part of it is because yeah. we, we have a preset distance that we want to be away from people. That's a really uh, good point. And for me, like it hasn't been as hard, like with people I don't know are walking down the streets or yeah. waiting in line or, or something like that, because th that's a different, that's kind of like a different mindset. Um, so people right now might be asking, uh, how do I know if it's just the justify fear versus I'm too anxious where it's becoming overboard that, that maybe it's too much. Well, what I would look for is situations where the anxiety is only interfering with your quality of life, that the, the hypervigilance, let's say, or the, the physiological arousal is only interfering with your quality of life. So if I can't sleep, that's not adaptive, right? There's nothing about me not sleeping that's helping me fight COVID. Uh, if I am washing my hands repeatedly in my own house where I haven't had any exposure to any new elements, right? That's not probably effective or helpful. So if the fear is driving responses that are not adaptive to the virus, to the situation, then that there's some unjustified fear operating there. And I'm actually increasing my baseline anxiety by operate by, by doing those things. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like if I'm washing my hands 25 times a day, I'm actually increasing my baseline anxiety. So we want to be mindful of, of that. So any urges that I have to engage in any kind of rituals or things that, you know, places where the anxiety is not serving me, then I think there's some work that can probably be done there. Mm -hmm. And then um, one thing that I'm seeing um, in practice, you know, fairly frequently is my friends are a lot more chill and, and liberal with this and, and they're going out and they're doing things, but yeah. I feel like I still should say, and am I, am I being too anxious? Am I, um, the bizarre one for, for staying inside and maintaining the social distance order. Uh, you're not going to hear that from me. Uh, maybe we're both insane. I don't know, but I, I feel like exactly the same way. Everybody here, as soon as things started opening up, they're not now not following the numbers anymore. They're not looking at the trend and what the actual risk is. They're just going, Oh, it's open. So it must be safe, which is actually putting me back into a more hypervigilant state. Cause now I feel like I've got to fight off friends that are trying to come in the house and shake my hands and whatever. So hug me. Right. So I, I think there's that, that is, that makes sense to me. And no, I don't think, I don't think that, of course, I don't think we are too anxious. Uh, but I think, again, like, then how do we be compassionate toward ourselves and practice the, whatever self-care we need to practice so that we are coping effectively with mm -hmm. operating in that state? So basically, there, there's a big range of normal with with your concerns that is within reason. I mean, in this situation, because there's an actual threat. So. Uh, and then 
Um, okay, so now we necessarily need to be um, more aware, more stressed, monitoring our behavior, monitoring our kids' behavior, and that that that's exhausting <laughs> over time, right? Const- constantly, right. Uh, particularly when some of the natural fear sort of goes down, and so you have to actively uh, mm-hmm. sort of do it. Uh, what ways have you been recommending to help people cope with this very adaptive need to be more aware and more stressed? Well, I think one of the things that I've encouraged people to do is really be constantly kind of checking in and being mindful of where they do feel like the balance is and where they need to land. Um, You know, as data has come out on, um, for example, more high risk groups being like obesity, hypertension, pre-existing conditions that have to do with like cardiac conditions, things like that. You know, I have a a son who has a reactive airway and asthma. And so we were like locking him down, washing him down everywhere, you know, not going anywhere. And as the data is coming out that, you know, 0.0009% of kids of the deaths are kids under five, right? Things like that. I can, you know, I'm going to the grocery store, right? So I'm not going to the mall. I'm not going to the public pool. I'm going to the grocery store. And so, and that's just my balance, but I think like as data comes in and as time goes on and we have different things developing and, and whatever, I think if anytime you can just check in and go like, what is my balance that I need to strike? Because we can't ignore the cost to our quality of life of not seeing people, not, not being around anybody, right. Not going out of the house as much, not seeing sunlight or, you know, whatever it is, not going on a vacation. Is there a safe way? Airbnbs are open now. They have a pretty strict cleaning policy. Is it safe to go rent a house somewhere and just, you know, that these are the kind of conversations I'm having with people is like, let's, let's continue to reassess what your balance looks like, your wise minded balance. And because as we start to loosen up in the ways that feel like wise minded to us, you'll notice that the stress goes down, the hypervigilance does, it comes down and your overall quality of life is better. Mm-hmm. So is there any specific, um, so that's one way of, of, uh, of coping. Is there any other ways that you've been helping people cope with this very normal stress? Cause people, I mean, there is a heightened level of stress right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, there's two things that I ask people to t- attend to like really thoughtfully and that's, uh, well, there's three things, what's called please skills. So feeding yourself well, sleeping well, exercising, like not giving up on those things. Um, and then achievement and enjoyment. I think achievement and enjoyment are the two things that we see uh, really kind of stave off depressive states. So um, anything that you can do that, from your home or whatever your limits are that will enhance achievement and enjoyment. So, you know, really putting some effort into finding new ways to do that instead of being in this sort of holding pattern. Mm, like starting your own podcast. Yeah. Is that what you did? Did you just start this during COVID? I, I've been thinking about it for a while, but then during COVID, uh, very much on, on that principle was, okay, like how, how do I, how do I cope and, and stay mentally healthy during this? And so part of the reason, it was part of the reason that pushed me over the edge to actually go ahead, go ahead and do it. So cool. You've made meaning of this time. I love yeah. that. Uh, what's interesting, if you go on Amazon and you actually look for podcast equipment, tons of it is sold out the good equipment just because like, Ugh. I guess a lot of people got the same idea. It might not be just podcasting. They might be recording music and stuff like that. But yeah. a lot of people started buying as you know, a lot of at home activity stuff in order to do exactly um, what you're saying. Totally. Yeah. Um, You'll see, you can see all the stuff that's sold out is like, Oh, I'm not the only one that had the idea that I should get some two pound weights or a, a puzzle. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all the exercise stuff I try to buy gone, the podcast equipment I try to buy gone. It was, it's all gone. Um, so 
And any resources or ways that people can, any resources that you want to talk about or ways that people could um, follow what you're doing or, or what your, your practice is doing? Uh, well, for people, there is a, there's, there are a few websites that you can kind of look for. Like if you're looking for a DBT in your area, is that, was that what you mean by resources? Sure. Any resources that you think would be good for people that you recommend? Well, so the, the, there's lots of, there's some books out there. Like there's a, um, for people who have like loved ones that they think have borderline personality or emotion dysregulation interfering with the relationship. I think loving someone with BPD is like a really good read. Mm. And it, it introduces you to some of the basic components of validation and behaviorism that are, I think are just like, it's so accessible in that book. And I, so I love that. Um, there are some, uh, um, community groups as well, like for, for parents, um, or, or loved ones, there's, um, the, uh, family connections program, which is a free, um, kind of peer led resource for people in different communities around that doesn't cost anything. Uh, Marshall Linehan has a website, behavioraltech.org is a website where you can look for certified clinicians, uh, that are practicing certified DBT. That's been a new initiative, uh, in the last few years, um, just to make sure that consumers are protected. Cause there's a lot of people, it's a very complex treatment and it's really hard to learn. And it, it takes, it's like, pretty grueling to go through the process. And so you have a lot of people thinking they're doing DBT and probably, you know, well-meaning people thinking mm -hmm. they're delivering DBT when they're not. And so consumers are getting spoiled on a treatment that is, you know, one of the very few ways that they're going to be able to get help for, for that problem. And, and how could someone know that they're actually getting a DBT therapist that's trained, like it, like fully trained in DBT? The, the simplest ways if they have that Linehan board certification. So there's only, there's one certification that I feel confident in, and that's the, the Linehan board certification. Um, and then beyond that, you want to at least make sure that the program is, has all four components operating so that there's a group skills training, that there is a individual um, therapy session that you're going to get phone coaching. And I, maybe the component that's left out the most that that therapist is, is participating on a consultation team with other DBT providers. If those things aren't all operating, Operating, uh, you may not be actually in DBT. Okay. You are um, not actually in DBT. <laughs> and then, and then what's the, just in case people like say, Oh, I want to, you know, come to you or, or the, the practice that you're working for is sounding pretty good. Like what's the name of the practice and what towns or cities are they located in? Uh, I'm with CBT California. Uh, I'm the clinical director there and I'm in the orange County location, but we have a team of like very well-trained psychologists, uh, and, so, and um, therapist in uh, Beverly Hills, Torrance, and Newport Beach. So cbtcalifornia.com is our website. Um, you can also look at my website at julioris.com um, for more information about me. Okay. So how to keep, uh, keep in touch with, with what you're doing and see what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, right. we have a newsletter. CBT California has a newsletter that often gives like resources or tips or like a skill of the month or things like that. So you can subscribe to the newsletter on cbtcalifornia.com. Oh, great! And is and is there is that pretty easy to find on the website? Is it? Yeah, like, there's just a, it's just a click. If you just type in your email address, then we'll to add you to the list. Oh, great! All right, well, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. I think this was absolutely yeah. great. I mean, I learned a ton about DBT <laughs> today, so I can cool. only imagine that people listening probably took took so much away with them. Good. I'm glad I, this was awesome. It was really fun. 